This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today I speak with Jim Finley, a master of the Christian contemplative way and a renowned retreat leader. Jim left home at the age of 18 and studied at the Abbey of Gethsemane with Thomas Merton for six years. He's a clinical psychologist in Santa Monica, California, and the author of the book, Christian Meditation, Experiencing the Presence of God. With Sounds True, Jim has recorded several audio learning series, including Christian Meditation, Entering the Mind of Christ, Thomas Merton's Path, to the Palace of Nowhere, and, along with intuitive Carolyn Mace, the audio program Transforming Trauma, a seven-step process for spiritual healing. He also has a new program with Sounds True, Meister Eckhart's Living Wisdom, Indestructible Joy, and the Path of Letting Go. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Jim and I spoke about what it means to be illumined by faith, and to live in vulnerability. We talked about Meister Eckhart's life as a 14th century mystic and what Jim has found to be most compelling about both his life and his teachings. Finally, Jim led us through a Christian meditation practice in the tradition of Meister Eckhart. Here's my conversation with Jim Finley. Jim, in order to create a program, Meister Eckhart's Living Wisdom, I'm imagining that at some point in your life, you fell in love with the teachings of Meister Eckhart. And to begin with, I'd like to know a little bit about that. What was happening in your life when you fell in love with the teachings of Meister Eckhart? When I graduated from uh, high school in 1961, I I entered the Trappist Monastery at the Abbey of Gethsemane in Kentucky, where I lived there as a member of the community for nearly six years. And at that time, uh, Thomas Merton was uh, Master of Novices. He was the senior monk assigned to the spiritual formation of those newly entering the monastery. And I felt very privileged to be with him. I saw him as a living master, kind of a living, kind of awakened person in the contemplative lineage of the Christian tradition. And uh, in his conferences and in his talks one-on-one with me in spiritual direction, uh, he would mention these different classical texts of the different mystics, uh, one of which was Meister Eckhart. And in the novitiate library, there was some collected sermons of Eckhart, and that's when I started reading Meister Eckhart. And... um, When I started reading him, I was just very taken by, um, I guess what struck me was a sense of the depth and beauty of uh, what he was saying, and that's kind of how it started for me. Now, if you were to say that there were just a couple of the most important guiding principles in Meister Eckhart's work that have really meant the most to you, what would those principles be? Um, I think one would be, these would be kind of, uh, say, refrains that run through all of his sermons. Um, One would be his understanding of God as um, generosity. He he, he uses this word, galazenheit, that, that, that if we think of God as generosity, then the generosity of the infinite is infinite. And in this infinite generosity of God, God is in a sense, like laz, like lazen, we see the root word lazy. God's very laid back about being God. God's 
not uptight about it at all. And God so released, God so freed in being God that God gives, God infinitely gives the infinity of God away as the ground of our own soul, whereas the reality of all things and is nothingness without God. So if the generosity of the infinite is infinite, that we are the generosity of God. That's the most one of the most stunning things for me. And to 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 realize that, to experience that, Eckhart says, uh, is to is to experience the joy that death does not have the power to destroy. That I, in the very depths of myself, in the very generosity of God in my very nothingness without God. That's one of the central things that has kind of uh, captivated me. And and the second one then would be that he is kind of a mystic teacher. He offers uh, uh, guidelines for a way of life in which each of us can personally open ourselves to be transformed in that realization, which are the teachings found in the sermons of Meister Eckhart. So I, I would put it that way as kind of the foundational place to start. Well, let's talk more about this generosity. What does that mean in practical terms as a person? What does that mean? Um, Meister Eckhart, um, he talks about moments. I think this is a helpful place to begin uh, he talks about moments in which he says, and he says we need to be very careful of these moments because we can get attached to them. But, but from time to time, uh, there are moments where we serendipitously uh, find our way into an unexplainable richness welling up out of the depths of life itself. Uh, so, for example, um, sometimes... Uh, like in the midst of nature or an intimacy with another person or in solitude or in birth or in death or the pause between two lines of a poem or in prayer, um, we're fleetingly graced with a deep awareness that that nothing's missing anywhere. It's like boundaryless in all directions. Like we, we don't know what to make of it. It's, it's, when it's actually happening, it's it's too self-evident to doubt. It's too deep to comprehend. And there are these moments of awakening. There are these moments of awakening. Like utterly beyond what can be defined, utterly beyond what can be grasped. And we're momentarily resting in that kind of sunlit clarity. And then when the moment passes, when the moment passes and we return back to our customary way of going about our life then we it's like how to not to break faith with our awakened heart like in our most childlike hour i know that i fleetingly glimpse that without which my life is forever incomplete and i i think that's the sense of or i put it another way in terms of love when we deeply love somebody that when we don't know someone very well it's easy to say a lot about them but when we've loved them very, very deeply for a long, long time, we don't know what to say. And our heart breaks when we try. And we know no matter what we would say, it wouldn't be what we know because we can't say it. And I think that's the generosity of God, is that intimacy, that experience. Now, you said something very interesting, not breaking faith with those moments of awakening. And I, I think... Probably many listeners can relate to those moments of, I think you referred to, sunlit clarity, those types of experiences. But then when they're gone, we miss them or wish they would return or wonder why they're so far away. Is that breaking faith? I mean, what would it mean to stay faithful to those moments that seem now out of my reach? Yes. No, I think Meister Eckhart would say that, let's say there are, there are these moments, and then in, in the remembrance of these moments, there's a kind of a, a longing um, for a more abiding way to rest in them. 
And he would say listening to the, that kind of delicate longing is actually the beginnings of the path. See, how how could I possibly learn to live in a more daily abiding awareness of this depth so fleetingly glimpsed? And so the the practical question then would be, how does one go about learning to habituate that sensitivity to that, to let it become more ever more habitual? We would we would break faith with it. I think when we play the cynic, that is when it's like the awakened heart knows that it's true. But the ego, remembering the moment that it was transcended, is skeptical. See, that we we buy into the density and intensity of our day-by-day preoccupations and we shrug it off. I think that's what he's talking about, the, the seduction of the perceived uh, importance of the day-by-day. And we, we, we kind of move on. We lose touch with it. Now, one of the images that you offer in this series of teachings from Meister Eckhart is this idea of border crossings that were called to cross certain borders. Can you talk about that? Yes, here's like a fundamental, like a spiritual anthropology or a spiritual sense of the when Eckhart invites us to reflect on ourselves, here's the way I put it visually. Um, imagine we draw a circle, a pretty big circle like the size of a coffee saucer on a blank piece of paper. And that circle represents our soul, and our soul is our the interiority of ourself, like our self-reflective bodily self in time and space, like you and I having this conversation right now. And he says our soul uh, looks outward at the surrounding world. So that everything that comes into our soul comes into us through our senses. And coming into our senses, we form ideas uh, about ourselves and the world around us. And we have our memory of ourself and the world around us. And we have our desires that were formed in the uh, within ourselves and the world around us we have our sense we have our senses our spiritual senses our emotions and there's all of that and and Eckhart would encourage us to respect the gift of that and to um really what he says really just that it's just grounded in love to to ground that day by day um life as a human being in love illumined by faith and we we live our daily life illumined by faith this way. But if in the very middle of the circle, we put a small circle in the very middle, and the small circle in the very middle is the mystery that the ground of God, by the generosity of God, makes the ground of God to be the ground of our own soul. So that God's ground and our ground are one ground in the innermost center of ourself, like the deepest depths of the depths of ourself within ourself. So typically we go through life looking outward, like the outer face of the soul, and we're going along, we, we're just, we're human beings living our daily life. But what happens to us in these moments of awakening, this these kind of quickenings, is a kind of boundary crossing from within. That is, we're intimately accessed by what's inherently unsayable, which silences us. And that boundary crossing of the intimately realized unsayable is this this flash or this taste of this realized oneness. And then when it when it passes and we return back to the preoccupation of looking outward, then there is the remembrance of the border crossing within ourselves in our most childlike hour. And so the question then is, how do I learn not to be so taken up by the reality of my outward awareness of my outward surrounding thoughts and images, impressions, and all of that? Uh, now that I've tasted directly for myself that which is so utterly beyond all of that 
and which I intuit will alone consummate the longings of my heart. And those are boarding those are border crossings. Now, Jim, I'm curious about something in your own life. You offered this phrase being illumined by faith, and you talked about staying faithful to our moments of awakening. And I'm curious, right now in this moment, as we're having this conversation, when you reflect on what is your faith, what is faith to you, I'd be curious to know what that is. Um, well, I would, uh, and I'll say it to kind of in keeping your in kind of an affinity with Eckhart, but putting into my own experience of this and my sense of just talking to a lot of people about this is that I, how I experience it is I, I live my daily life I'm just like a human being among human beings. And um, my, I think my faith at, at one level is a kind of an awareness that I have that this day-by-day life that I'm living um, is proceeding moment by moment by moment by moment by the um, the infinite mystery of reality itself, which we call God, not the Judeo-Christian tradition. Different traditions call it different names, Brahman or the Tao, spirit. And the moment by moment by moment by moment, reality itself is giving me my reality. It's giving me the reality of this talk we're having right now. And that I can be aware of that, and I can read that in the scriptures, and I can have a personal relationship with that through prayer, and uh, express it through love in my daily life, and trust that when I die, when the veil parts, um, it won't be... Uh, as in a mirror darkly, but I'll know even as I am known that a God will be all in all as this kind of eternal destiny beyond thought, beyond feeling, beyond so-and-so. So there's that, and there's just the efficacy of that, like the authenticity of the sincerely lived life. But also for me, and this is what I think drew me to the monastery and being in the monastery and drew me to Eckhart, there are these moments of awakening we're talking about here where there's a kind of um, moments where we're intimately silenced by the intimacy of the unsayable. And uh, Eckhart says of these moments, he says that he said that it, these moments, he says, steals the soul from herself. I love that phrase. They steal the soul from herself. That is... In these moments, there's this intimate tasting of something utterly, utterly, utterly beyond anything I could even begin to say. And uh, it's accessing me and calling me to itself. And so my faith then is how can I kind of live in a kind of childlike vulnerability in surrendering myself over to receptive openness to that, that it might have its way with me. And in the reciprocity of love, how can I then give myself to this unspeakable generosity that so unspeakably gives itself to me? So I, I think for me it's both. It's this, it's this day by day, just sincerity of a, of a life of faith that calls us to love. And then there's this kind of mystical tasting of this oneness and an inner call to how to habituate myself uh, in that uh, oneness. Now, I'm curious, we're talking some about the teachings of Meister Eckhart and what they've meant to you in your life. And I'm curious to know, was there anything about his life itself, the choices that he made, the way that he lived and acted in society that has particularly inspired you? Uh, yeah, I'd say several things, really. I uh, One is I, I one of the commentators that I refer to in the series and so on, Reiner Sherman, he's referring to Eckhart's sermons, and Sherman says... Um, he says, the fact that Eckhart's clothing was full of holes uh, suggests to us, 
suggest to us the fire that consumed him. And uh, I get the feeling that when Eckhart gave his sermons, and you, when we slowly read them out loud to ourselves, or we just kind of sit with it in a very open way, you, you get the feeling that he was so radically trying to um, let the truth of what he was saying flow not from him but through him. Uh, and so there was this there was this fidelity to it's like language in the service of the unsayable uh, that he was speaking from the depths of his awakened heart so the deep unto deep the place from which his words came in him allows that same depth to resonate in me and deep unto deep there's a sense of resonance or a kind of a recognition uh, in the reverberations of the language That's that's one thing I think he had to I don't know what word to use for that. There's a kind of a purity that he had in how he used language. And the second thing that strikes me is that for complicated reasons, he was uh, accused of heresy. And he was accused of um, uh, pantheism, uh, which is a complex issue in the Christian tradition in terms of the mystic and saying that everything is God. And he was pointing out that those who accused him of that failed to understand the the paradoxical subtlety of his language. That he clearly was not saying that everything is God. To the contrary, he was saying, he was bearing witness to our absolute nothingness without God. But it's our absolute nothingness without God that makes our very presence to be the presence of God. And so he held true to that subtle, uh, paradoxical language and uh, for political reasons and different reasons, there was a series of trials uh, in which he was um, called to a series of defenses about his teachings. And what strikes me about it is, is you never get the feeling in him, one, that he backed down at all. He just held true to the the kind of subtle purity of what he felt impelled to say. But you never get any sense of bitterness in him. You never get any sense that he's going to take my marbles and go home. You never get a sense of reactive uh, resentment. There was a kind of a, I don't know what, a kind of a freedom uh, from it all and uh, in the very midst of it. And that really uh, strikes me. And the third thing that strikes me is that this kind of elegant uh, fullness that Eckhart talks about, he keeps bearing witness to the fact that it is in no way whatsoever other than the concrete immediacy of the way we are in the present moment, just the way we are. He's always, sometimes he'll say in the sermon, he'll be giving a sermon, he he says, this unitive mystery that I'm talking about, you can experience it before you leave this church today where he'll say, you may experience it before the sermon is over. He's always inviting us to kind of uh, come back to listen out of a very vulnerable place. He's never talking about anything other than the virginal immediacy of the very moment in which we're listening to what he's saying. And I would say those are the qualities, I guess, that most kind of strike me about him. Jim, one of the themes in the series, I think there's a lot of confusion about is the idea of detachment. That detachment is an important spiritual principle. And I'm wondering if you can help us understand Meister Eckhart's teachings on detachment. Yeah, I want to, I want to go back to the image I gave earlier about this, the circle of our soul and looking outward at the surrounding world and all that comes into the senses. And then the smaller circle in the innermost center where the ground of God and the ground of the soul are one in the innermost depths. And I also then want to compare this up to these moments of awareness, and I want to focus for a minute on intimacy with another person, like being deeply loved and loving another person. It could also be a moment of prayer or a moment of death or a moment of service to the community or the moment of uh, poetic uh, surrender. And the, the detachment would be this, I think, that 
loving and deeply loving someone. Uh, you know, Gabriel Marcel says, we know we love someone when we glimpsed in them that which is too beautiful to die. And I think to deeply love and be loved someone is to know that I, I cannot have closure in any thought I have about the Beloved. That no idea about the Beloved that my all of my ideas about the beloved are impoverished with respect to what I am the most intimate moments of communion with the beloved know the beloved to be that that detachment is a kind of um a habit of c- constraint in not allowing me to fall into an ideology of the beloved where I would conclude that any of my conclusions about the beloved are even capable of coming close to who the beloved is. And I think that's the essence of of detachment. Detachment comes from having glimpsed such an overflowing fullness that we've learned not to have closure in the finite self, finite perceptions of itself, others, or anything. And that kind of obediential fidelity to that intimately realized fullness is that quality of detachment. So how, once again, just to make this really practical in people's lives, what would that mean in terms of being detached, let's say, in your marriage or with your children, with the people who are closest to you? Well, I... I, um... I'll, I'll use an example from my own life right now. You know, I'm I'm 70 now. My wife's 71, <laughs> and uh, we've been really blessed with just uh, like we're like two hermits living at the edge of the sea together. It's really quite wonderful. And growing older, we talk about the fleetingness of life and death and and uh, so on. And um, in these conversations that we have, and sometimes when I just kind of reflect upon it, it's sometimes like it's, there's like a love that's just too beautiful to die. It's like it's it's um, it's like um, it, it's it's realizing there's there's something deathless in the fleetingness of it all. And to kind of live with the poignancy that in just three and a half seconds we'll both have been dead a thousand years. And yet, in the very fleetingness of it, there's a kind of deathless beauty that we intimately kind of rest in or celebrate and live in together in all the intimate details of the day by day. And the closer I would get to try to find words that would do justice to that, the more I find myself at the edge of what words are even capable of saying. And I think to to constantly renew my willingness to live at the edge of that vulnerability in the day-by-day interactions of all this, that's, that's, you know, that's detachment. Tell me what you mean by that, living in that vulnerability. To me, it's it's like this, I think. Um, It's like the truth is that, here's how I put it, here's here's how I put it, again, using married love as the example, the example I would use is that the two people are having a conversation back and forth. Two people love each other very much. They love each other for a long time, very, 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 very much. And and she says to him, you know, before we met, I, I didn't even know a love like this existed. And he says to her, me either. And uh, she says, I suppose if we keep going on this way, that it'll get even deeper. And uh, he says, me too. And then she says, I wonder if we'll, ever, if we'll ever get to a depth of love so deep, there'll be no deeper, deeper depth of love beyond the depth of love that we've gotten to. That is what she's really asking. Is is there an end to love? See, will we ever get to the end of this? 
And when she asks it, she already knows the answer. She'll they'll never get to the end of it. They will never get to the end of it because love never ends. And that's the moment of free fall. That is, in the moment they mutually realize it together. See, is 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 that's see for break for Eckhart. See, that's breakthrough. That's that's the birth of the word in the soul and breakthrough into the Godhead. Here, here's another way I put it to get at this poetically with Eckhart. Is if say if you're walking out at the edge of the ocean and you're just ankle deep. It's true you're only ankle deep. But it's true if you just keep going, you'll get plenty deep soon enough, which is true. In relative consciousness of relative reality, there's ever deeper degrees of the realization of the depths that we're entering into. That's true enough. But here's what Eckhart is saying. What if the center of the ocean is infinitely deep? It is it's bottomless. It's a bottomless abyss. And what if the bottomless abyss of the infinite is infinitely giving the infinity itself away as each incremental degree of awakening to it? So even even the first, in other words, if I think anyone who loves someone, their family or anyone you love someone, you look back at the very first moment you met each other. You're kind of fumbling ways how you were so unaware it was a you're getting yourself into. And um, the kind of awkwardness of love's unawareness, how in hindsight, love was taking perfectly good care of you, that you were already in the depths of the fullness of it all, unbeknownst to you. And then you know, no matter how ripe you get with all of this, it's always like that. That we will not live long enough to even begin to fathom the fathomless depths of what unspeakably and unexplainably keeps giving itself away uh, in every moment of our life when we stand up and we sit down it's just utterly unspeakable and I think that's Eckhart see this is why I think Eckhart when he talks about he says uh, when he's talking about the birth of the word in the soul, he says, the one who understands what I say about the just person understands everything I say. And so in our collective psyche for us today, if we think of Dr. Martin Luther King as the just person, and Eckhart would say, if we really look at somebody like this, is that they have no life of their own. They have no life of their own. The, the just person completely gives themselves to justice. So that, Eckhart says, they become what justice is. And so you get the feeling when you're in the presence of somebody like this, there's not an ego there that has attained something, but it's an ego that's lost everything. And in lost everything, you're in the presence of someone who's come upon what all life is about. So my sense of Eckhart is he's saying, uh, like, find that act or find that person or find that community which, when you give yourself over to it with your whole heart, it unravels your petty preoccupation with your self-absorbed self. And in doing so, strangely brings you home to yourself, where everything is so strangely unexplainable, so unexplainably self-evident. And that's my feeling of the, I guess, like the tonal quality of Meister Eckhart. Jim, what would you say in your life you've been able to give yourself wholly to? Well, I guess we're doing it right now with this conversation. I, how I put it is that I so amazes me. I came out of all this trauma at home and all of it, and I went to the monastery. And in the monastery, I was... Uh, completely taken unawares by all of this. And and we lived in silence. I didn't talk for six years, basically. And the silence had a very profound effect on me. It's hard to explain it, really. And when I would talk with Merton about this, he just so encouraged me to be kind of faithful to this and to surrender myself to it. And it just, it just, uh, there's just no words for it. And I, I, then I, I, um, so when I feel, when I left the monastery, 
I felt it's called as much as ever to how can I live this way out here? That is, as true monasteries create optimal conditions for this sweet surrender to the unexplainable. It's true. But most of us are called to live it out here. Like, how do I, in the ordinariness of myself, um, come upon the unbearable sweetness of my ordinariness and all my wayward ways? And so through meditation and prayer and studying the mystics in my daily life and becoming, going through my own therapy and becoming a therapist in my marriage, I, I feel that I'm trying to, I guess, do what you and I are doing right now. I try to, I try to share with people. I try to pass on what was passed on to me um, on silent retreats and in my writings. And then I try to be faithful to it with my wife and I by this kind of vulnerability with each other in this and when sitting with people in therapy and just having a talk with somebody in a hallway I feel I'm just always trying to be faithful to this You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive two free gifts just for visiting us. Just go to soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. That's soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. And now back to Insights at the Edge. In the program, Jim, in the section where you're teaching on Meister Eckhart's view of detachment, you talk about this idea of assuming the inner stance that has the least resistance. And I wonder if you can talk some about that. What's the inner stance that has the least resistance? Yes, I think this is Eckhart's insight into the nature of the path. Let's say, let's go back for a minute, and let's say we're talking about moments of awakening, these kind of, these these fleeting, spontaneous moments of um, serendipitously finding our way into this oneness, whether it be psychologically intense or very, very subtle, in the arms of the beloved or in solitude or prayer, out in whatever it is, the darkness of the night. And then um, I return back to my customary state of being so habituated to um, the density and intensity of the finiteness of myself in relationship to the outer world. So then I say, well, how how can I then... Um, well, see, what's the path? That is, how can I... What can I do here... In other words, how can I learn to live in a more daily abiding awareness of the depths so fleetingly glimpsed? In my most childlike hour, there was this quickening, like these these flashes of awareness. So I, I'm powerless to make these moments happen. I cannot make the moments of awakening happen. But I can freely choose to assume the inner stance that offers the least resistance to be overtaken by the grace to bend of what we cannot make happen. It's true, we cannot make it happen. But what we cannot make happen overtakes us in our inability to attain it. And so this is meditation practice. And this is vulnerability and love. Or this is the essence of healing and deep therapy. Or this is the... The, the, the poet and the pause between two lines of the poem. The, the poet cannot make poetry happen, but the poet can assume an inner stance that offers the least resistance to the graced event of poetry occurring. A lovers cannot make moments of oceanic oneness happen, but they can freely choose the inner stance that offers the least resistance to the grace of oceanic oneness happening. The person committed to healing can't make healing happen, and so on. And so, so this is practice, that the essence of meditation practice, of all practices, is a kind of a paradoxical activity of, of freely choosing to assume an inner stance of 
sustained receptivity to what I cannot make happen so that it can overtake me in my powerlessness to make it happen. And it comes welling up unexplainably out of the um, sincerity of my vulnerability to it. And then little by little by little, all life can become practice. That is, little by little by little, I can learn to ripen or mature in this habituated stance. And um, so I live in an habitual underlying consciousness of this one thing that's always happening, which is um, the, 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 the infinite mystery is infinitely giving itself away is every breath and heartbeat. And I can live in a visceral kind of underlying certainty in my heart that that's true that I can't explain but I know that it's true I know you teach Christian meditation retreats contemplative weekends and you've also created a series with Sounds True on Christian meditation and I'm curious if you were to lead us in what you could call an Eckhartian meditation practice a meditation practice that draws on the work of Meister Eckhart. Do you think that might be possible? Could you take us through something right here and now? Yes, yes, I could do that. Yes, I could do that. My sense of, uh, like, guidelines I use for meditation, which are have been very influenced by Eckhart, other teachers, too, John of the Cross and Cloud of Unknowing and Buddhism and yoga, other f- sources have come into this. But this is how it has formed in me as a practical way to meditate that has helped me. The, the guidelines are, with respect to the body, to sit still, to sit straight, eyes closed or lowered towards the ground, our hands in a comfortable or meaningful position in our lap, slow, deep, natural breathing. And the guidelines for the mind are to be present, open, and awake, neither clinging to nor rejecting anything. And the guidelines for attitude are non-judgmental compassion towards ourselves, as we discover ourselves clinging to and rejecting everything. Non-judgmental compassion towards others and their powerlessness, one with ours. And I'd like to. I would then like to walk down through these guidelines for practice. So when we sit in meditation. The authenticity of it is we bring our whole life to the practice. Like, here I am, Lord. We just bring our whole life to the practice. And we we sit still. At one level, we, we sit still to quiet the mind, like we can learn from the body how to be. By sitting still, we can learn to be still. But in the stillness, we bear witness to ourself and to the whole world that there's no place to go. We sit still because there's nowhere to go. If I can't find it here, I won't find it anywhere because everything I'm looking for is perfectly giving itself away as the concreteness of myself right here. And and also, this is the stillness of death, that I'm here to die to my dreaded and cherished illusions about myself, that I'm anything other than this generosity. And so I, I sit still with all my heart. I sit straight in the sense in which the image I have of this is that a mother whose baby is crying, and it finally goes to sleep. And when she lays the baby down, she slides her hand out from under the baby, being very careful not to wake it up. That usually when we're alert, we're tense, and when we relax, we fall asleep. But we're trying to be very awake and relaxed at the same time. So that if I sit in meditation, if I'm sitting still and sitting straight, sometimes I'll notice my head drooping forward as I get sleepy. Uh, and the straightness of my posture, I start to slump over. And so I'm to renew the straightness of my posture with the same carefulness with which the mother eases her hand out from under the sleeping baby. That is, I'm to renew the straightness of my posture without disrupting the heightened delicacy of the practice. And myself, I think really... uh, that a lot of, of of what eludes us in meditation is we, it, it takes a while for us to realize the intimate interiority of it, that it, it happens right there in something as intimate as the way in which we renew our posture. 
and we close our eyes or lower our eyes to the ground. See, Lord, that I might see. Lord, that I might see. Lord, that I might see you in everything that I see. Lord, that I might see the infinity of yourself giving itself away as everything that I see and its nothingness without you. So if I'm looking down at the palms of my hands, that I might see the infinity of your generosity is the palms of my hands, Lord, that I might see. Jesus said, you have eyes to see and you do not see. And uh, we rest our hands in our lap because this is Sabbath. That is, a, This is not a work achieved with human hands. And so I, I, I actively choose to rest in this wakefulness, this sustained stance that offers the least resistance to be overtaken by what I'm powerless to attain. And then there's the breath. Uh, that in, in the breath, uh, God breathed into Adam the gift of life. God's breathing into me right now at this very moment, like mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, that God, that is life itself, God is the infinity of the inhalation. And when I exhale, I can exhale myself as a love gift to the love that gives itself to me. So in the in the reciprocity of the breath, sometimes I suggest to people, if they take a word or a phrase to use when they meditate, if we would take the word, I love you, that when we inhale, if we listen to God's silent, I love you, which, the, which is the infinity of love giving itself away as the concreteness of our life, then taking that in when we exhale, I exhale myself as a love giving myself and love to the love that gives itself to me. So in the reciprocity of love, destiny is fulfilled. And that's the body-grounded foundations of meditation practice. And then to be present, open, and awake, neither clinging to nor rejecting anything, that when I sit like this, in this kind of... um, Unguarded vulnerability, uh, thought arises, say thought arises. And as I watch it, thought endures, like it goes like in an arc, and then it passes away. Then a thought arises, thought endures, and it passes away. And so sitting here, I'm not trying to stop thinking, which would just be the ego imposing itself upon itself. But I'm also to try to not think the thought that I'm thinking, because if I get thinking about the thoughts that I'm thinking, I'm not sitting there, I'm off at my thinking. But I can I can watch thought arising, I can be aware of thought arising, thought enduring, and thought passing away. Now, the awareness of thinking is not thinking. So the awareness of thinking is already the transcendence of thinking. This is very uh, subtle. And I can learn to patiently ground myself in this subtlety. So too with feelings that arise and endure and pass away. So too with memories that arise and endure and pass away. So too with bodily sensations that arise and endure and pass away. And I can sit and sustain receptivity to the arising, to the enduring and the passing away, grounded in the awareness of the absolute nothingness of the thought that's arising. And in the awareness of its nothingness arising, I can become intimately aware that the thought arising is God, completely giving herself away, the totality of God giving herself away as this thought arising, giving itself away as this thought enduring, as this thought passing away. And so with memory, so with feeling, uh, so with my whole life. And so I can I can unexplainably, unexpectedly come upon in the vulnerability of practice this unitive mystery that is itself all that God is and all that I really am, which is the unitive mystery Eckhart is attempting to lead us to. Now, when I commit myself to such a practice, uh, compassion, see, is I, I experience a lot of slippage. Because I I, I I I I see that I'm half-hearted, or that I'm I'm discouraged, or that I'm whatever. I, I meet myself as I really am, and I, I can I watch two things happening when I meditate. One is I attack the very part of myself that needs to be loved the most, namely that in me that's the most inept 
at achieving what I'm sitting there to achieve. And in that violence, I, 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 I violate the great way. Or I give up, I abandon myself. And uh, so I'm either, I catch myself in the act of either perpetuating violence on the, on the preciousness of myself and my fragility, or I abandon it. And so I ask for the grace to neither invade nor abandon, to not, to not attack myself for my ineptness, nor to abandon myself in my ineptness, but rather to surrender myself over to the infinite irrelevancy of my fragility in the face of a love that carries me along as infinitely loved and lovable in the midst of the fragility itself. And this is, then, I think, this is, uh, like, this is then the loss of all reference. This is free fall, I think. See, this is, this is um, surrendering ourselves. This, this is, that, that compassion is that love that recognizes and identifies with the preciousness of all that is lost and broken in ourselves and others. And I think this is what Eckhart's calling us to. And then when I look out at the world, I see that the whole world is this. Everyone's walking around like me, hypnotized by attacking um, the very that in them that needs to be loved the most and by abandoning it. And we inflict it on ourselves upon, upon each other. So how to live in this world, not cynical or jaded, not part of the violence nor part of the abandonment, about how to keep our mind open and our heart open and our life open, breath by breath, in every interaction and and so on. So that's my sense of it. And and uh, so every day, then when I when I practice my practice, I ask for the grace not to break the thread of this childlike sincerity, and I go about my day, and I, I try to ground myself in that habituated state of the unspeakable holiness of every moment throughout the day. It's slippage, 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 slippage. And I come back the next day in this renewed rendezvous, and I sit still, I sit straight, slow, deep, natural breathing, and uh, I ground myself in my practice, and I try my best to live this way. And a month later, two years later, 40 years later, I, I just find myself immensely grateful that I, I was led to follow this path. So I think then, we, uh, for me then, I find in the sermons of Meister Eckhart someone who did live this way and uh, to a very profound degree. And I find that when he talks in his sermons, the depth of his integrity, his obediential fidelity to this resonates with my call to live in obediential fidelity to this. And this is the timeless... Uh, lineage of this awakening that Eckhart calls us to. Now, Jim, I'm curious if someone's listening and has heard your references to this childlike sincerity and what they notice in themselves is a gap, that that's not really where they're at. They want to be there, but that's not where they are. They're, they're in an adult somewhat holding back, wanting to be more sincere like an open child, but they're not there. What would you say to them? Well, I would say the way I would say it to a real person like sitting before me now. So let's say this is where the rubber hits the road right here, where it's a real person listening to this. And this is the kind of things people say all the time on retreats. And it's what I say to myself many times. I Here's the way I would say it. I would say, you know, when we when you hear something like this, you have to like take in where you are with all this right now. I mean, you're li- you're living your life, and obviously something's going on, or you wouldn't even be sitting here having this conversation, asking me about this. So something's happening, and you're living your life, and there's much to be grateful for, and all the richness of your life. But let's say you're you're listening to this and you're drawn to it. But in being drawn to it, no sooner do you start than you notice this gap. Like you said, it sounds lovely when you say it. There's a kind of a poetic beauty in that. But as soon as I sit down, I, I, I just 
meet my customary self the way I am. And I would ask them to describe to me what that was. I would, I'd want them to tell me what that was for them about their worries about the day or people. It's usually things like that. So then I would say, well, a good place to start might be this. And sometimes when I model it for people, I'll say, I'll put it in the form of a prayer. So I would put it in the form of a prayer. I'd put it this way. Lord God, help me to begin to recognize your presence in this gap. Because the gap is real, sure enough. I live with it every day. But I also sense down in the depths of the gap the stirrings of a possibility. And the possibility is the shimmering of something that draws me even to talk to you like this. See? Help me, instead of, instead of being dismissive towards the gap, or instead of seeing the gap as a problem, help me to listen very, very deeply the gap and help me to like lean into it in a kind of an attentive vulnerability to see what I might discover about myself as I kind of listen to you like that in the midst of myself being the way I am and I would I would then ask them to respond where they were with that and that's what I would do There's a word that you've used several times in our conversation, vulnerability. And I'm curious to know more what that means to you, like leaning in with vulnerability. I put it this way. Uh, Now I use the image from therapy or just from life about vulnerability. The image I use is to say a father puts his little girl up in the low branches of a tree and he reaches his arms up and he says, jump. And uh, there's a moment there of hesitancy like that and, and, uh, and she jumps. And when she jumps, let's say tragically, he steps aside, she hits the ground and he laughs. And uh, that is a child is very vulnerable, but in in the optimal conditions that every child deserves, they're safe in their vulnerability because they have loving parents that watch over and take care of them until they learn to take care of themselves. Now, we all have within ourselves our own history of uh, intended and unintended slights in love where we can feel invisible in our own home, where we feel we're not seen, or we don't belong. It just takes all kinds of forms. And in that, we learn to be guarded. And in a certain sense, we need to learn to be guarded. But the trouble is, we learn to get so guarded, we don't. We lose faith in our right that we can be completely vulnerable and completely safe at the same time. Now, sometimes... Uh, we find this uh, through a healing process. Sometimes we can find it in the friend, like the the person with whom we can kind of venture into this territory. But I think what it, it, sometimes we can come in deep meditation, like long sitting, like getting to a very, very, very vulnerable place. That is, it's a place of unguardedness. And in the complete unguardedness, being unexplainably invincible in the vulnerability. And that's what I mean by that. In other words, Thomas Merton says, it is that in, is finding that in us that is not subject to the brutalities of our own will, nor is it subject to the brutalities of anybody else's will. That is, I unexpectedly come upon within myself that which no one can do anything to destroy or diminish because it belongs completely to God. And I can't destroy it either. And once once I find this, that is, once I, once I taste it for myself, then I can learn to uh, honor it. And I can learn to ground myself in it habitually. So I can learn to have um, inner peace 
in a way that is not dependent on the outcome of the situation. Because no matter what the outcome of the situation, I already know in my awakened heart, it'll just be one variation of this one thing that's always happening. It's a presence that protects me from nothing, even as it unexplainably sustains me in all things. And that's what I mean by vulnerability. Jim, I just have one final question for you. You you mentioned that you're 70 years old. And what I'm curious to know is here you've devoted your life to the life of the mystics and continuing their teachings and to the life of spiritual direction and writing and teaching and healing. And I'm curious to know at this point, at age 70, is there anything you feel is incomplete, undone, that you have a sense of, you know, I'm not ready to leave this earth because this hasn't been completed? You know, the truth is I, I don't. But for this reason, say in the light of our talk we're having, I would say, you know, there is incompleteness. Like, I, 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 uh, I'm working on this healing book for Sounds True, and I I did this thing with that card, and I got some other thing, like this, different things. I'm working on mystical sobriety. I always have these things that I'm working on, and I, I always have things about myself, too, that I feel I've not yet been as completely vulnerable as I could be. I I find myself with my legs sometimes having a hard time walking. I'm inclined not to use my cane out in public because I just don't want to admit that I might need one. And I, I said, there's all kinds of little repertoire that I have of unfinished things, but I, I don't because I would say in the light of this dialogue we've had, see, I would say that God, there is incompleteness, but God is the infinity of the incompleteness of myself. And because God is the completeness of my incompleteness, in some way I could I could die in my sleep tonight, really. I could I just feel everything's so unexplainably complete and incompleteness that I, I don't that's how I feel. But and but I also feel it's true of everybody. And the suffering arises we're just in varying degrees of realizing that, that the that there's I, how I experience it is this: Imagine we draw a line from left to right, like a curve, and a trajectory toward the future. So we're on this, we're in our passage through time, growing older by the minute through our life, moving into the future, and there's a sense of incompleteness, real and imagined. But the present moment, that trajectory through time, is being intersected. Uh, by the infinite depth dimension of a mystery that's giving itself away as a virginal immediacy of every moment on that line, which is the moment right in this conversation we're having right now, and in the in the in the zero variance of the infinite and the manifested immediacy of this present moment, that's the one thing that's always happening. And so, in the light of that, there's a sense that I, I just don't. There is incompleteness, but I sense that God's the infinity of incompleteness. So I, that's how I see it. So I experience it. You have a quote from Meister Eckhart's Living Wisdom. When we die, we are not annihilated, but consummated. I thought that was beautiful. Yeah, it is beautiful. Yeah. Oh, it is beautiful. See, I, that's why I love that phrase. Uh, Sherman really quoting on Eckhart. See, what is the joy that death does not have the power to destroy? And how might I discover it? And the, the great paradox for Eckhart is I discovered by dying, you know, moment by moment by moment by moment, to the illusion that anything real apart from the infinite generosity that's giving itself away, is every moment of my life. And that that process of... I, I shared this story in a cartoon. I, I, uh, an image I use is a point to end on, maybe, is Eckhart says, uh, he's talking about a mirror. And he says, imagine you're looking at yourself in a full-length mirror. I'll paraphrase Eckhart. 
And he says, imagine this image of yourself that you're looking at in the mirror is conscious. That is, it's a conscious reflecting image of you. And imagine this conscious image of you has been through a lot of therapy. It's read a lot of self-help books. And it's come to a point that this image of you feels it no longer needs you. And it kind of tells you it's setting out on its own. And and you say to this image of you, you don't think life will go well for it without you since it's an image of you, but it refuses to hear nothing of it. It won't hear anything about it. You're holding me back. And so to, to prove your, to demonstrate your point, you step halfway off the side of the mirror and half the image disappears. It has a panic attack. It has to go back into therapy. It says to the therapist, I'm not real. I'm not real. I was trying so hard. Now, the image is real. It just isn't real the way it imagined it was real. That is, and therefore, we are not in any way real other than the infinite generosity of God that's completely giving itself away as the immediacy of ourself and our nothingness without God. And that's the joy that death does not have the power to destroy. And my sense of Eckhart is that's really you know, the the reverberations of his language, the intonations of his language, he's trying to guide us toward that, that deathless joy. I've been speaking with Jim Finley. Jim, I always enjoy speaking with you. It's a special treat for me here at Sounds True. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Tammy. It's always a mutual, I always... Uh, I'm always graced too when we talk like this. It's a gift to me, so thank you once again. With Sounds True, Jim has created a new six-session audio learning series called Meister Eckhart's Living Wisdom, Indestructible Joy and the Path of Letting Go. He's also created a series of recordings on Christian meditation, Entering the Mind of Christ, and an audio series on Thomas Merton's path to the Palace of Nowhere. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.